0: at orderct.com slash easter24. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Hello, I'm Bill Hendricks, Executive Director for Christian Leadership at the Hendricks Center, at Dallas Theological Seminary, and it's my privilege to welcome you to The Table podcast where we discuss issues of God and culture. Once upon a time, it's hard to believe, but there really was the world's first computer, and that computer could be programmed by humans to do things that, frankly, only humans could do. And soon those machines were able to do certain tasks much faster than humans could do them. And then in 1977, A computer defeated a world-class chess champion in a match of several games, at which point machines were said to have become as smart as humans. And now we have artificial intelligence, which some in the science and technology space predict will quickly join with various other technologies and actually outstrip human capabilities and lead us into a whole new era of humanity or perhaps even something beyond humans. This is no longer science fiction. Uh, this is a present reality that is developing rapidly, and it raises many questions. And that's why I'm delighted today to welcome Dr. Frazal Rana. Uh, as the president, he's the president and CEO of Reasons to Believe, which was founded in 1986 by Dr. Hugh Ross, a Christian working as an astrophysicist to help people see how scientific research and clear thinking consistently affirm the truth of the Bible and of the good news that it reveals. Fuzz, welcome back to The Table podcast.
1: Bill, thanks for having me. It's a a delight to be here.
0: Well, great. And I say welcome back because uh, we were able to feature uh, uh, Dr. Rana on a previous Table podcast related to transhumanism. Today, we're going to do a a close cousin of transhumanism really a subset in a way and talk about artificial intelligence fuzz by training i understand you're a bioethicist is that correct
1: a a biochemist biochemist yeah yes so uh, i i've uh, spent my my career uh studying the the molecules that make up living systems so uh I, i i find molecules fascinating and and uh, and i see you know within these molecular systems very clear signatures for design and and very clear pointers to the reality of a creator
0: wow and i and i assume then that you're a busy man these days because there's so much that's been happening in biology in the last few years
1: oh yeah i mean it's uh it's mind blowing really the 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 pace in which new advances are taking place it's you know far stripping anybody's ability to really keep on top of what's happening. Uh, the 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 pace is is really becoming breakneck, and and this is exciting, but it's also uh, I think deeply concerning because more and more uh, biology is really pushing uh, the front, pushing frontiers, pushing against boundaries, mm-hmm. because you know scientists now have the ability to create artificial non-natural life forms in the lab, you know, primarily by existing, by by manipulating pre-existing life forms, but they are able to create these life forms unlike anything that exists in nature. And these, you know, raise all kinds of very important, very interesting, and very complex uh, ethical issues. Uh, And so scientists can no longer afford just to to be in the lab doing their work, they really have to be thinking through you know, the, the ethical uh, implications of their work as well. And unfortunately, many scientists aren't doing that. And bioethicists really are struggling, I think, to keep pace with the, the scientific advances. Nobody has time to even deliberate about whether we should or shouldn't do a, a certain thing uh, before the next advance takes place. Yeah. Well, so with these
0: new complex, I mean, I hesitate to call them life forms. It's 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 something like life. Is it life? That that really leads to the the topic that you wrote your book on, uh, transhumanism. And th- tell us tell us a little bit more about what what transhumanism, transhumanism is about.
1: Yeah, well, you know. Um in it, 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 scientists that are looking to create, again, these artificial, non-natural life forms uh, fall under the umbrella of synthetic biology. Mm. And, uh, and transhumanism, you might think of as really being an extension of that, in, in that it, the goal is to use technology to modify our biological makeup as human beings so that we are able to uh, really overcome our limitations Uh, to make human beings more intelligent, stronger, more emotionally and psychologically Uh, well-adjusted. And some people even think that this technology could even be used uh, to maybe extend our life expectancy uh, to perhaps a a practical immortality. Hmm. And so people are, are looking at, you know, trying to, again, Overcome the 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 biggest limitation of our biology, which is the fact that we all are going to ultimately die, and uh, and so people see, you know, these advances in in technology as really being uh, something that could lead to a utopian type of future, and maybe even we would one day modify human beings to such a degree that we would live in a world uh, that's post-human where the the creatures, the entities that exist would be derived from us as human beings, but they would be so different that we would not recognize them as human beings. And part and parcel of that package of anticipating a post-human world would be maybe modifying animals so that they would have sentience and and, and intelligence and would be granted personhood. Or Hmm. the machines, as you mentioned, uh, these with artificial intelligence would be granted personhood, so that the post-human world would be, uh, again, hum, uh, you know, biological entities that were modifications of of human beings, but also it may even include uh, animals that have been modified to be uh, self-aware, to have a high level of cognitive abilities, and machines. So you really are looking at a, a type of future that. Feels very much like a, a science fiction novel, but this is the the trajectory that that many people see see uh, humanity on.
0: Well, it's interesting. You, you know, we talk about artificial intelligence. That I mean, you mentioned the the limitations of biology, and I guess there's one sort of strand of of uh, of this way of thinking that actually sees the day when biology is sort of no longer needed. It it just is all turned into. Information, or or we could use the term intelligence of a sort, and uh, uh, and we're 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 on that trajectory with artificial intelligence, where you have these algorithms that um, you ask questions of, and you get back fairly robust, uh, uh, and and detailed and in depth answers. Um, Sometimes there's, there's, there's a lot of dubious information in there, and sometimes it's remarkably human-like, if you will.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, I think probably many of your uh, listeners and viewers may be familiar with Chat GPT, right? Yes. That's just been released uh, you know not that long ago. And when I first played around with it, I wasn't that impressed. And a few months ago, or, or a few months later, I went back and began to play around with it, and I was impressed with how rapidly the quality of the responses improved, mm. uh, just even in a in a, a couple of months. And uh, and and it's remarkable because the the interactions that I've had recently with Chat GPT almost make me wonder if these systems actually would pass what's known as the Turing test. Mm -hmm. This was a test proposed by Alan Turing, the the father of computer science, uh, in 1950, where he argued that if you are interacting with a computer system, and you can't tell the difference between that system and an interaction with a human being, uh, that you have to argue that that machine has the ability to think, that that machine is Uh, is a is a an entity similar to that of a human being. Hmm. Now, there are people that I'm sure uh, have criticized the Turing test as maybe not being the best way to to demonstrate sentience or or self-awareness in machines. Uh, But the point is, is that at least by that standard, uh, you might even argue that chat GPT very well may pass the Turing test where you can't tell the difference between Again, interacting with that software and interacting with the human being, or they're you know uh, as a customer service feature, mm. you know, with a lot of uh, online you know commerce, uh, there are these chat bots now mm-hmm. that that interact with you that help you navigate the site or address the concerns or the questions you might have, and it's not clear sometimes whether that chat bot is just an AI or is it actually a person on the other side of the computer screen in responding to your questions? So we're, we're dangerously close, I think for people to make an argument that these AI systems really deserve some kind of status beyond that of just simply an algorithm or a machine.
0: Well, which of course raises the question, what do we now mean by human? You know, the, the machine is, is as good as a quote human um what is does that well? Then what do we mean by human? And of course, that embedded in that is what do we mean by thinking? My my understanding of Chat GPT, and uh, in in full disclosure, my background is in the humanities. So we we are already way out of my you know expertise. But uh, at least my perception and and what I've read about Chat GPT and programs like them is that you ask the question and. Because of the internet and, and all the linkages of all these all these little sources of information that have been placed online, that very quickly these machines are out there, you know, collating, if you will, um, curating, if you will, all this information and boiling it down very quickly to um, okay, here's what you need to know. And And then sort of icing on the cake is often in the case of Chat GPT, doing it in a in a way that's very personable and conversational as if you really were having a conversation with a a person um, which means that you're getting the amalgamated uh knowledge if you will of whatever humans have have put on the internet which of course means in in coming up with that answer it's it's left out what never got put on there in the first place as mm-hmm. well as you know I'm sure there's overloads of certain stuff knowledge uh, opinions on, on the internet and a surfeit of other things that may really factor into the equation um, as as you understand uh, how the brain works and maybe on top of that to some extent how the mind works um, is there really thinking going on there
1: yeah I I, I I don't think so. And, uh, you know, one way to think about AI systems is to think about them being not so much akin to human intelligence, but really akin to maybe what we might call animal intelligence. Hmm. And, And what I mean by that is that what ultimately undergirds AI systems and their ability to learn, if you will, quote unquote, to learn, is what is associated is machine learning, which is really a type of associative associative learning. Yeah. Know, remember the experiments that Pavlov did, right? You ring a bell, and the the dogs begin to salivate because they associate the ringing of the bell with with a reward, with mm-hmm. with getting food. And in associative learning, people have discovered in recent years is actually a very powerful way to to create systems that are able to per- learn to perform complex tasks where uh, problem solving is, is, a, is available through associative learning, a type of planning seems to be uh, emerge out of associative learning. But this is essentially what animals are doing is they're learning through associations where they, there's a behavior or there's an action they take and they're either rewarded or they're punished and if they're rewarded, then that behavior is going to continue. If they're punished, they'll do different types of behaviors or different types of actions. And that's essentially what machine learning is in, in, involving. You know, as you mentioned with ChatGPT, you know that that saw that AI system is going out onto the internet, and it is is pulling in information, uh, and then it it is analyzing that information, looking for patterns and then producing a a response and then you have a chance to give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down and that's essentially like giving it a reward or giving it a punishment mm. and so it's learning through this this type of association mm. you know but that that training set you know if you will that set of data somebody has decided that this is the set of data that chat gpt is going to use and uh, and so that's the the, the information, the initial information that it's using. But then, as it interacts with the human user, uh, who's again giving the thumbs up or the thumbs down, it's refining its responses. It's learning what is a, a good response, what is a bad response to particular questions. Where and this is very different than what humans do when we uh, when we think when we solve problems. Uh, Because as humans, we have um, uh, this ability called symbolism, that we can represent the world and even ideas with symbols, and that we can combine and recombine those symbols in a a near infinite number of ways Hmm. uh, to create stories, to create scenarios. So what we do when we problem solve is that we do mental time travel, that we think through different scenarios that could uh, result from actions that we would take now and that we would anticipate what those outcomes would be. And then on that basis, we then problem solve or we make decisions uh, based on these imaginary scenarios that we've created in our minds with an understanding of of cause and effect relationships or we might reflect on what happened in the past and imagine well what would it be what would happen differently if i if different decisions were made different actions were taken and so we're not really using a training set we're not really using associative learning but we're really using symbolism in the capacity to create scenarios and then to mental time travel to evaluate those scenarios in our minds And so this is fundamentally very different than what an AI system is doing. And so even though people talk about it being human-like or, you know, or making decisions like humans would make decisions uh, or, you know, performing tasks like humans would perform tasks, I I actually think a better way to say that is that these systems are learning in the way that animals are learning uh, through, through this associative process.
0: And and so when we up when we thumbs up something, it's it's essentially uh, uh, giving the animal a a, a treat. Uh, to, right. Uh, and and it says, oh well, then I'll do that again.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, you know, I I mean, one example of an of an AI system that probably many people are familiar with, whether you realize it or recognize it as an AI system or not, and that's the the texting app, yes. you know, on your smartphone. It's remarkable because as you type in a word, it suggests two or three other words that are most likely going to be the, the word that you're going to type next, right? And so, what's happened is somebody has created this training set or where they have all the possible words in the English language and then they assign probabilities to those words as being the most likely word to follow mm-hmm. after you type a specific word. So, if I type Jesus there's pro- the the probability I'm going to type Christ next is probably very high, right? So it, it that so initially it's going to it suggest offers you
0: that yeah
1: right th- those options, but um, but as you begin to use the software, what's happening is that if you select one of those offerings, it boosts its probability the next go around. But if you don't select any of them. It reduces their probability. And if you suggest a word that it would not have anticipated, it remembers that. And then it assigns that to an increasingly higher probability each time you type that that word that it wouldn't have initially expected. But this is essentially associative learning, right? Where it's it's starting off with a, a set of options and it's refining those options based on rewards and punishments that you're giving to that system, either by selecting or or deselecting a, a particular word choice. So that's what an AI system is doing. And uh, AI experts would call this narrow AI or weak AI or specialized AI, where it's des- the AI system is designed for a specific task, but it has to be trained to, to do that task with a d- with a set of data that is extracting patterns from and then making decisions or producing output based on that those patterns. Uh, in contradistinction, the, the holy grail of AI research would be something called artificial general intelligence, mm. uh, where the AI system can make decisions without any kind of training ahead of time. And that's in effect what we do as human beings, is mm. that we can make decisions without having any prior experience uh, in in you know uh, that we can reason through things uh, again based on our capacity for symbolism in this open ended ability to manipulate those symbols
0: well it's interesting to me that in that system particularly the weak AI as you put it um, there's still the need for a human element mm-hmm. in in the chain because um, uh, of course, this whole AI thing raises massive issues of, of trust and believability because mm-hmm. you can get uh, a blog post that I read uh, gave a history – a college history exam answer that was pristine and and beautiful and just had all kinds of facts nailed. The only problem was it, it got the wrong uh, person's. Uh, identified as who had come up with this particular uh, way of thinking back in history, um, and obviously over time that would learn. No, it was this other person. But what the blog blogger pointed out was that verifying and editing have now become essential skill sets for every individual. So we get the answer from from the the, the Chat GPT or whatever, and. We'd have to look over it and see, well, what parts of this are, are spot on, um, but then what parts need to be edited? Yeah. And I guess that's okay, but there's still that human element that has to do what the the machine can't do.
1: Right. I, you know, I mean, ultimately, the, the best use of AI systems are always going to be those systems where the AI system becomes a tool and there's always human oversight you know and, and if we ever move away from having human oversight at some level i think this is where i think the real danger and the real misuse of ai can can take place you can never remove that human element but even like with chat gpt there is somebody that has made decisions as to what constitutes the data it's going to draw from right right and uh, and even the way the ai system works is again there? There is a bias. Uh, the the developer uh, has introduced their own particular bias, or, or their philosophy, or their set of values into what data is going to be selected, what data isn't, but then how that system responds. So, you know, it's very interesting when you ask Chat GPT a question that is more philosophical or theological or values oriented, oftentimes it does a great job of saying, here are the two perspectives. Mm-hmm. But then what it does is it'll say it really is ultimately up to the individual to decide which perspective they're most comfortable with. Now that's very interesting to me because on one hand you could say, well, the developers, you know, were trying to be fair and balanced. They weren't trying to push any particular agenda, or at least they they are, you know, giving that that appearance but what they have ultimately done is essentially introduced this idea of relativism
0: mm-hmm.
1: in as a philosophical framework for how chat gpt is going to respond to theological philosophical or values oriented questions right it's up to the user to decide what is what is ultimately true so even then there is a, a philosophy <laughs> That is permeating how Chat GPT operates. So you've got to be—you have to do your due diligence in terms of understanding where is this AI system getting its data. You know, is how is it training? You know, can it that training be manipulated? <laughs> you know, by by people that might want to uh, skew its response by you know flooding the the AI system with. You know, uh, particular types of pluses or minuses or thumbs up or thumbs down, you know, and and uh, you know, is there a, an undergirding philosophy that is at play in terms of the way the AI system works?
0: Well, that is a mark of human beings, is it? In that whatever we create, whether it's a computer program or a car or a piece of poetry or or anything that we we develop. Um, we always leave the fingerprints of our own worldview and mm-hmm. moral inclinations, like we can't really ever get away from that it It becomes embedded in the very design of what we've put together, which frankly i think I think it it factors into your story. You talked about the design of cells. there's fingerprints there. You know the, the the intricate design tells you something about the designer, and and that's part of part of being made in the image of God is that is that everything we do we communicate something about ourselves uh, because that's what God does every time He communicates in any way, shape, or form anything He creates anything He reveals, um, but the designer of, of a computer algorithm, uh, it it sounds so neutral, so technical, so Removed, and yet even in the putting together of that uh, that code and what it's designed to do, you can't help but inject uh, moral. Uh, I call them biases or inclinations, uh, philosophical inclinations, et cetera.
1: Yeah, you know, and um, you know, in in many respects, you know, to I think to build off of your point. Um, there's nothing wrong with with somebody introducing their particular bias into the content that they would create or a, a, an algorithm that they would write or the data set that they would choose to train their ai system it's it's human nature we we all are biased we can't avoid that but you know when i was uh, uh, growing up and learning to 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 read and to think critically it was a time when there weren't ai systems there weren't there wasn't even the internet And so, part of what we learn to do is, if we read an article, we would ask the question, well, who is that author, Mm -hmm. right? What is their expertise? Uh, What is their political leaning? What is their religious leaning? You know, do they have an agenda? Are they trying to promote a particular perspective? Um, You know, what is the publication that they're writing for? Uh, What's its orientation? What is it trying to accomplish? So as you read, you understood that there were biases, and you wouldn't necessarily
0: so, even hold those against them. You just factor that into your interpretation of what they're giving you.
1: Exactly, exactly. Uh, and and I think we we have to be careful now as we move into this, you know, this era of AI that that we double down. <laughs> that you know, and one one of the things that I find very frustrating about Chat GPT is I've asked it uh, several times. Well, could you give me a reference for the information you provided? And it tells me it can't do that. Yeah, right. Right. Whereas, like with Google, we and, and other you know search engines, we know that there are algorithms that are used that kind of elevate certain articles to the top and and de elevate other articles based on some kind of you know algor- You know, again, algorithm that the, that the search engine designers have put in place. Uh, and a lot of people try to game that by mm-hmm. trying to understand the algorithm and how can they manipulate it to get their article with visibility. But what at least I like about that is I, I have a sense for what is being promoted and what isn't. Uh, and I know that there's other things out there that that Google isn't suggesting, right? But I can at least go and read the article and I can ask the question, well, who is this person and what is this website all about? right? What is this publication all about? So I'm, I'm able to critically evaluate the information as I'm consuming it. Um, but I can't do that with with, uh, with chat GPT. And that, that to me is very frustrating.
0: From Christianity Today, this is Mike Cosper. I'm the director of CT Media and one of the hosts of The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. Each week on The Bulletin, we bring in a variety of guests for conversations about the most important questions Christians are asking. Our hope is to encourage the church to live with a faithful presence in a fallen world and to cut through the polarizing noise that's dividing not just the church, but the communities around us. New episodes of The Bulletin come out every Friday, so subscribe today, wherever you get your podcasts. You, you talked about as long as humans, uh, I'll use the phrase, stay in control, um, you know, we, we got a shot at, at, at some good uses. Uh, I think about human nature, and I think about how lazy humans can be, and at some point, they just get tired of, of being in control. Um, you know, the technology just becomes too easy to flip the switch, and it, 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 it's given me good enough stuff so, for instance, uh, uh, having breakfast recently with a friend, and he had just gotten on ChatGPT and he was playing around with it. And so he asked the, uh, the ChatGPT to write a letter to a dying parent, and he said it returned a remarkably uh, touching, emotionally compelling uh, piece. Um, you know, and and he sort of stopped and and thought, "But is this morally acceptable? I mean, mm. th- what if I actually sent that to a dying parent? Um, is that is that legitimate? And, and And, of course, somebody could say, "Well, how is that really all that different from, you know, just going out and buying a Valentine's Day card to give to your wife on on Valentine's Day when the card expresses so much better and more eloquently anything you could say. Um, or a sympathy card to somebody who's lost a loved one. Um, uh, somebody could say, you know, Bill, it's it's not the words anyway. It's it's the gesture. Um, but I don't know what what will the world be like? What will what will humans be like um, when they have a program that creates their communication for them, and they never have to go through the the struggle of sorting out their feelings and finding ways and words with which to communicate?
1: You know, I mean, you're, you're raising this really profound point. I think that that really deserves a lot of thought Uh, because, you know, to me, one of the things that I find frightening about uh, not just chat GPT, but generative AI in, in as a a package is that, is it going to make humans irrelevant?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Right. You know, if, as you said, if if I can have Chat GPT write a, a sympathy note to somebody or a love letter, you know, to the person that I care about, have I have I come become irrelevant? Am I no longer a creator? If 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 a, a poem or a piece of music or a piece of art can be produced by an AI system, you know, it seems like you're robbing human beings of. One of the things that defines us, which is our creativity, that we are creators and and these AI systems are really making human beings unnecessary to create, you know, or, you know, as AI systems uh, become more and more capable of performing more and more sophisticated tasks, you, you no longer have humans that are even necessary to do a lot of work. Right. And again, our ability in, in our um, investment of time and effort in the work that we do is very much part of what it means to be a human being. So if you eliminate our need, the need that we have to work, the need that we have to be creative, you know, and you've, you've granted that to these AI systems, you know, have we fundamentally robbed human beings of, of the core of who we are? Uh, you know, uh, is or have you made have we made human beings irrelevant? That to me is 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 profoundly chilling.
0: I think it's very chilling, and I think it 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 ultimately begins to raise the possibility of robbing humans of just work itself. Um, and you know, at what point do humans actually start working for the machines instead of the other way other way around? Um, I, I, I want to tie this into the work that you do at Reasons to Believe um, because uh, um, Reasons to Believe, you're you are grappling with scientific uh, uh, developments and, and the questions that they raise and finding avenues by which to help people begin to discover uh, Jesus and the, and the gospel. And I guess i'm I'm just curious, as you've thought about all this, what openings, as it were, um, do you see ai as as opening to uh, to the gospel?
1: Well, you know, i I, I think as uh, we continue to develop AI and in and, and other types of technologies like like AI, we are rapidly moving into um an, a time where, you might say that humanity is practicing a type of religious system known hmm. as techno-faith.
0: Hmm.
1: All right. right? Where uh where we are looking to to science and the technology that comes from science as a way to mitigate pain and suffering in the world, to you know, perhaps produce a type of utopian future, you know, to to solve some of our most pressing problems where people are going to begin to put their hope, their trust in science and technology. And this will become particularly true as we become increasingly secular in our world. And so, in a sense, you could see techno-faith is really a competitor to the gospel. And, you know, in in fact, um, this these advances in AI begin to bleed into this, uh, this movement known as transhumanism, hmm. right, where this, it's a it's an idea that again is dressed up in the language of science and technology but it really is a religious idea at its very core where our ultimate salvation is going to come from uh, from science and technology and our ability to modify our bodies in such a way that we have a a type of practical immortality so it very much is a, a religious idea a, you know and um one of the areas of 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 human enhancement technology that really again intersects with ai would be what are called brain computer interfaces this is uh, these are these electronic devices that you can implant in the brains of test subjects or patients and those these systems uh, can extract electrical activity from the brain and communicate user intent uh, to a computer, so- computer software or machine hardware. Now, this is going to revolutionize how we treat people that are amputees. So they can use these these BCIs to to control robotic prosthetic limbs. Or it's going to revolutionize how we we treat uh, patients that are paraplegic or quadriplegic, where they could uh, learn to control exoskeletons with their their thoughts. Uh, People that are locked in that can't communicate because of brain injuries Mm -hmm. can communicate uh, by thinking and converting their thoughts into text. But what's happening is that as these BCIs are asked to do more and more sophisticated tasks, uh, in order to extract the user intent from the electrical activity in the brain, it requires essentially machine learning algorithms that learn To associate patterns of electrical activity in the brain to again user intent, so now you're forming this collaboration between the human, this BCI and the machine uh, machine learning algorithms or the AI systems, and so it raises a lot of very interesting questions about autonomy and who's in control. Those kinds of of questions, Uh, but these kind of advances give a lot of excitement to people who think that maybe one day we might be able to upload our minds, you know, into a machine framework and and attain a a practical digital immortality. And so, you know, uh, interestingly enough, people like Elon Musk with his company Neuralink Hmm. are trying to develop the next generation of BCI technologies because they see this as necessary to be able to, to essentially interface the human brain with machi- with computer systems if we are going to be able to maintain comp- a competitive edge uh, over the AI systems that we are creating. <laughs> and, and so, he's become a reluctant transhumanist, yeah. you know, ironically, uh, because of his concern about what AI systems are going to, to generate. And you know, remarkably, you have to use AI systems in order to compete with AI systems yeah. in in you know Elon <laughs> Musk's framework. But the but the larger point here is this: is that um, these kind of advances are, are leading to the, this idea of techno faith, where people are going to turn to science and technology for salvation, not turn to to the gospel. But what I see happening here is that these kind of advances are really exposing the deepest need that we have as human beings, uh, which is a need for hope, purpose, and destiny, that we desire to connect to the transcendent, that we recognize that death is wrong, that we recognize that there's something tragic in the possible extinction of humanity. And so people are searching for salvation it's just that the source of their salvation is misguided, is misdirected. But this gives us an opportunity to really talk about the gospel in, in an exciting new way, in an exciting fresh way, uh, in a in a world that's becoming, again, increasingly secular and increasingly uh, techno-savvy.
0: Well, it would certainly seem, in one sense, that I think... That that uh, you know, technology is a savior um, as long as one actually is getting saved. Um, but I think most people, well, in 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 spirit, they might say, "Oh, sure, I want to save the species, you know, promote the species survival survival of our species." Um, not necessarily at at a cost to them personally, because they kind of get left behind in that in that rush. In other words, the, one of the things that is exposed, as you put it, uh, by some of these technologies that are developing is, is the radical inequalities that begin to open up. I mean, if nothing else, you, you certainly have some very, very, very bright people uh, aided by some very, very, very wealthy people who sort of are, is this elite group developing these things and, and operating them and having control over them. And creating the algorithms and so forth and so on, and and this widening gap between the, I mean the the ninety one percent of the world that makes less than ten thousand dollars a year, those, those people, how would they ever uh, gain access to or have benefit from, you know these these systems, um, certainly in their lifetime, um, and, and uh, it's interesting you mentioned Elon Musk. Um, my understanding is that part of the reason he wants to select just a handful of people, eight people or whatever, to go colonize Mars is that's the lifeboat from which we will, as a species, get off the planet. And uh, uh, but, but the admission there is, well, we've kind of messed things up here, so we need to go start over somewhere else. And, and implicit in that to me is, well, uh, but you haven't figured it out yet so why start somewhere else and mess that one up too
1: yeah yeah you know your 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 point about inequality is is a very powerful point you know and uh, and we really are very rapidly moving to a world of haves and have-nots mm. and uh and the 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 potential for abuse is, is is enormous in in that particular framework you know and and to me that part of the irony of trying to gain salvation through the use of technology is something that uh, philosophers call uh, the salvation paradox is that ultimately what we save isn't going to be us. It's going to be something that else that we have created. Uh, Or if you are looking to save yourself by uploading your brain, you know, or your mind or a copy of your brain or your mind into a machine framework uh, what's being saved is a, a digital copy of you, not you, right? And, and so, you know, the, the I think the the larger point is that, you know, technology is a false gospel, and it's only going to disappoint us if we turn to it for salvation. And that's something that we need to articulate as Christians to our cultures that, hey, technology can do great things if it is managed well. Uh, but it can never ultimately save us, hmm. uh, and, and that the only place that we can find salvation is in the person of Christ. Uh, but at least, you know, people are uh, exposing the fact that they they crave, you know, they crave after salvation. They're looking for something to save them. They realize the the desperate situation that they're in, and that's a very critical first step towards you know, for towards people hearing and responding to the gospel.
0: Well, it's a fascinating uh, competing narratives, isn't it? On the one side, you've got a technology that's holding out promise of salvation in a very uh, technological way. And then you have the narrative of a creator who actually entered into humanity, not remove it. That actually came into a messy world, and with the with the offer of salvation, um, and and kept that humanity, and in fact, uh, by becoming human, dignified that humanity and and literally redeemed it.
1: Yes, yes, and in uh, the the challenge that we have is is to show that you know that in the midst of these competing narratives, that. Um, that that the Christians you know the Christian offer the Christian hope is is where there's true hope there's true salvation that's going to be the task that's in in front of us you know as we move in, into this into this future uh, but you know the allure of techno faith you know in the in the gospel of transhumanism is a very powerful allure yes right because particularly for people that are a, of a secular mindset who. Have rejected belief in God. Have rejected belief in the supernatural. Uh, you know, if you are a materialist, if you're an atheist, there is no ultimate hope, purpose, or destiny. And so, transhumanism and, and these kind of emerging technologies really offer some kind of hope um, for for you know people who uh, have rejected the possibility that there is a God. Uh, the, and, and so it's a type of eschatology that's being offered. And and so it's, it's again, a, it's going to be a very attractive gospel, to be clear. But I think people that embrace that gospel are extremely naive hmm. uh, in terms of really what technology can ultimately deliver.
0: Well, of course, uh, back in Genesis 11, we have the story of the Tower of Babel. And uh, humanity coming together to, on a giant project that was very technologically driven. Nothing wrong with technology per se, but as you said, it's how it's managed. And the Lord comes down and, and sees what's going on and realizes how impressive it is, as technology so often is. And he says, if as one people, if as one people all sharing a common language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do, will be beyond them. And of course at that point he decides to confuse the languages and stall things out for a while. But here we come back again on a big giant project. And it'll be interesting to see how the Lord responds this time. Um, Obviously, we, we, we haven't come up with all the answers today, but I think we've come up with at least some insights, Fuzz, and I am so grateful to you for your time and being uh, uh so key in this conversation thank you for the work that you're doing thank you for being on the table podcast
1: oh thanks for having me it's it was a lot of, of, of fun and uh, enjoyed enjoyed the chat bill
0: well we will we will definitely uh keep this series going there's a whole lot of stuff developing and and we're i know there're going to be a lot of questions and i want to thank all of you f- uh who've joined us today for this podcast uh if you're on a subscription service, we would invite you to please leave a review about your experience with today's podcast. And, of course, we would invite you to subscribe. We come out with The Table podcast weekly, and that way you'll be able to keep up on a, on the regular rotation of, of what we do. But for The Table podcast, I'm Bill Hendricks. We'll see you next time.
1: Thanks for listening to The Table podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary, teach truth, love well.